The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's almost November 2012, and the United States is experiencing a presidential election season. It's coming at the end of four years of seemingly endless campaigning, a long nominating process that at one time involved dozens of candidates, virulent partisanship, threats of national disaster if the other side wins, special interest groups that are forcing parties toward the extremes on some issues, nominees trying to move away from the extremists, political money everywhere. In other words, in many ways, it's just like the presidential campaign of 1860. But 1860 was also different from any other campaign in American history, since it was followed by civil war. We'll explore this dramatic election today with Douglas Edgerton, author of Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the election that brought on the Civil War, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected listen listen the world is talking the world talk radio variety channel welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you from high atop the brewster building well actually the third floor out of fourth floors in the brewster building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a beautiful autumn afternoon in October of 2012. But as always, speaking just for the show, just for me, not for uh, the host institution, East Carolina University, or its history department or any other subset, and likewise our guest will speak just for himself, not for me or anyone else, anybody who works for anything. Well, it has been a uh, a good week this past week here at Civil War uh, Talk Radio World Headquarters uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, the following story comes to mind, uh, which I will tie in momentarily, that after the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, in, in the aftermath, years after, uh, people discussed frequently what, what happened, why uh, did the Confederates lose, was Lee... Uh, was Longstreet too slow? Did Ewell fail to attack when he should have? Was Stuart absent? Uh, and general 
uh, George Pickett is famous for having been asked uh, which of these theories accounts for it. Uh, he supposedly replied, uh, I always thought the Yankees had something to do with it. Well, this past week, my home team uh, from my native city, the Detroit Tigers, swept the New York Yankees in four straight games to win the American League pennant and go on to the World Series. We don't know who will play yet, but we'll see. But all week, the media analysts on SportsCenter and elsewhere have been discussing the series in terms of A-Rod's slump and Jeter's injury and the Yankees pitching and the Yankees hitting and the Yankees fielding and the Yankees managing and all analyzing why they lost these games. And all I could think of was to paraphrase uh, General Pickett, I think the Tigers had something to do with it. So I say good luck to uh, Cabrera, Verlander, and the boys as we go to the 11th World Series in Tigers history. The uh, If we go back, the previous ones were 06, 84, and 68, then 45, then into prehistory. But the 68 World Series was, for me, a formative event. It was the same year I learned, visited the Battle of Antietam. Uh, the battlefield there and, and acquired two lifelong passions, uh, Tiger baseball being one of them. But uh, let's talk about the other one today, the Civil War. In other Civil War talk radio news, the uh, review that I discussed with uh, Harold Holzer earlier this season on a show, uh, a review that I, I wrote for the HNET uh, website, uh, has appeared. So if you are a member of H-CivWar, or if you just look up uh, that site online, you can read the reviews that are posted there. Uh, I, I reviewed a book called, uh, what was the exact title? Let's get it right. Uh, it was called Decided on the Battlefield, Grant Sherman in the Election of 1864. And I was quite excited. It sounded like a, a really good idea for a book to tie in military and political issues together, and uh, it turned out to be uh, really not a good book, and I reviewed it as such. Uh, the, the secondary sources are outdated, the primary sources are random and taken out of compilations, there's no archival research, no meaningful thesis, no fact-checking, on and on. Uh, it's safe to say the author will not be on this show because we're not going to waste time with that. Uh, so if you want to know more about that book, go to HNET and uh, Google that, and, and hopefully that review will come up sooner or later. And you can tell me what you think. Send me an email uh, here at East Carolina, and I'll be interested to know what your response is. I don't normally write negative reviews uh, or invite guests on the show whose books are not worthwhile. There, there's no reason to subject you to that uh, if you're going to listen, but once in a while, the book comes across the desk with a request for review, and you have to call them, uh, call them as I see them. Well, I'm happy to say the guests coming up uh, today and in future shows are not the authors of bad books, uh, at least those that I've read so far, which includes today's. And next week, uh, Brian Wills will join us to talk about George Henry Thomas. Then we'll have Brian Dirk, uh, same first name, no relation, talking about Abraham Lincoln and white America. And on November 9th, Gail Stevens will be discussing Lou Wallace, author of Ben-Hur and uh, absent uh, wandering division commander at Shiloh. Bobby Horton is provisionally scheduled for November 16th. 
to do some Civil War music for us. Then we'll have Thanksgiving, a week, maybe two. But on November 7th, we'll bring back uh, John Jakes to talk about the, uh, uh, the, the great trilogy he wrote many years ago on the Civil War, uh, Civil War fiction. We don't normally treat Civil War fiction, but once in a while it, it's too good an opportunity to pass up. And finally, in the news, if you're uh, anxious to in, encounter Civil War talk radio in person, I will be at uh, Providence, Rhode Island on November 3rd, I believe, first Saturday in November for the Rhode Island Civil War Roundtable meeting. And if you're a member or if you join real quick, I'd be happy to see you there. So you can find out about all these things, future shows, from our website, uh, assistant website, to the World Talk Radio site. It's called www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney runs the site, and he also benefits, as I do, from your donations to the show at Civil War TR. CivilWarTR at AOL.com. That's the PayPal address. Thanks to everyone who has donated this season. That keeps the lights on, keeps the website running, allows me to buy copies of books that our ECU library is slow in obtaining or uh, doesn't have the taxpayer funds to obtain. So appreciate if you can get that. I can also use it for copious quantities of whiskey and cigars like some of the characters we'll be talking about in a few minutes today. But I don't. I don't smoke cigars, so uh, you can be assured your money will not go at least to that vice. Uh, but there are others it could go to. Uh, we'll talk about some political vices uh, with our guest today, Douglas R. Edgerton, author of Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the Election that Brought on the Civil War. Uh, Professor Edgerton, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Good to talk to you. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, Is you soft are. G? Yeah. Oh. That's good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pronounced like as if there's a D in it. Um, but but to be honest, people typically don't get it right, and I don't much care. So, well, I, I once had somebody pronounce my last name wrong, and I still haven't gotten over it. So, uh, uh, but rather than last names, uh, please call me Jerry. And and, and do you go by uh, go by uh, Doug. Doug? Doug? Yeah. I'll, let's do that. Make it faster. That sounds great. Uh, uh, I was looking up your day job uh you you teach for a living uh tell us a little bit about your background um actually i was born and raised in arizona um the reason i got interested in, in the kind of things i write about um my uh, my ancestors were uh north carolina small planters kind of big farmers they owned about eight slaves um got basically burned out during the war and, and then kind of wandered out to arizona territory and um uh, i had a grandmother who uh, married into that family who was from Nashville and was born in um, 1885. She made it till 95, and until uh, she was about 94 and a half, she had uh, had her brains. And um, she was lovely and she was sweet. Um, and of course, she had uh, the racial attitudes of somebody born in in Tennessee in the Gilded Age. And um, mm-hmm. I was in college, and, and Roots was on. And um, she took me aside. She said, "You know, you have to understand this was this was all lies. That that uh, we were good to our people. And uh, in fact, her father was was in the war. Um, so um, I thought, well, this is something I want to know a bit more about. And so I, I moved east for graduate school and, and went to Georgetown. Lived in Washington and Northern Virginia for seven years. And then since 1987, I've been uh, teaching up here in the heart of the Burned Over District in Syracuse, New York, at a." Um, a small Jesuit liberal arts college uh, called Lemoyne College, and so I write about 
sort of the intersections of race and politics uh, in the years from the revolution through Reconstruction. Well, it's a fascinating personal connection to have uh, to talk to someone who could uh, to talk of our people that that far back is really remarkable. Um, you mentioned in your acknowledgments, uh, uh, Sally Haddon, one of your colleagues. Uh, does she teach there? Or oh no, no, know? she's, she's uh, she was in the mid she was down in Florida. She's in the Midwest. No, I, I I've just known Sally for a bunch of years um, from conferences and and uh, one of the few virtues of getting older is is that you know you meet. A lot of great friends and, and a lot of great historians and, and Sally's both. Um, well, she, you know, she is that. She was a, a colleague of mine in, in grad school. Um, oh, no you know, kidding! All right, all right. Uh, we were working on her dissertations at the same time, and uh, I haven't seen her in years. But uh, if you do have contact with her, please give her my best. Yeah, absolutely, I will. And and uh, she read uh, some of the chapters, and and you know, she wrote a terrific book uh, about yes. slave patrols and and um, and controls. And she's also, of course, not only you know historian, she's also an attorney and. Uh, so, you know, caught a few of the kind of legal uh, aspects of the story, too. So, uh, uh, yeah, I see her uh, usually at a uh, couple of conferences every year, and, and uh, she's doing great. Well, that's right. I, I recall it. I, I had the same experience. I'd left, I left law, the practice of law to, to go back to grad school, and so we, she and I used to talk both the, the law talk and the history talk. Right, right, right. Uh, well, good. Um, so... Well, well, this, this explains where you, you come by this interest in the era. Uh, the book you've written here on 1860, uh, I guess let's, let's start with the title for the, the listeners who have just uh, randomly uh, picked up the show or listened to, to every show but are not necessarily uh, uh, poetry fans. Uh, what, what is the year of meteors? What is the source of that? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a poem written by Walt Whitman. Um, actually, there were... A series of meteor showers in 1859 and 1860, and so Whitman wrote this poem, which is dedicated to John Brown. But he does talk about the coming of the presidential election and how Americans are sort of watching these events with great trepidation. And then ultimately, the meteors, the shooting stars, are, are uh, the American people and and the voters who are getting ready to make this this very tough decision. And um, Whitman, of course, became a, an enormous fan of Lincoln. Um, but uh, clearly, the, the, the references to the, the, the tall, bearded white man in the poem um, are, are references to John Brown, you know, rising, walking up the, the gallows. But um, uh, it begins, year of meteors, brooding year. And, uh, and certainly anybody living at the time understood that, that it was going to be um, one way or the other, probably one of the, the most decisive elections in American history. Well, there is, is no question about that. Let me, before getting to the substance of the book, I, I, I referred briefly during the introduction to a, a really not very good book that I read by a non-historian who just put together some uh, Bruce Catton and, and Shelby Foote and thought he'd make a book out of it. And what you've done here, it seems to me, is, is written a book that is, that uses a lot of secondary sources. Uh, it, it's not, the, it's not the classic dissertation style monograph that that is based all primary sources and is primarily analytical. But this tells just a uh, a gripping story. It's a page turner. Uh, even if you know who's going to win the election, which I would guess every reader does, and and what's going to happen afterwards, and it, it synthesizes all these these. You know, up-to-date secondary sources. Then it's got a lot of newspapers you've obviously looked at and other primary sources as well. 
this is the way history for a public audience ought to be done, it seems to me. Um, I guess my question to you is, why don't more historians write like this? Um, well, first of all, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad. I, I've always believed that the historians can write for multiple audiences at the same time. I think there is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping this was a book that could appeal to other historians, uh, to, to, to lay readers. Um, at, at some point, when it comes out in paper, I, I, I hope, you know, to students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if historians just sort of avoid kind of talking just to each other and, and avoid the, the kind of jargon that, that uh, we're sort of encouraged to fall into back when we were at graduate school, um, that, that you know, we really can write for, for a very kind of diverse audience. Uh, this was, you know, a great story. It would be, frankly, you know, pretty hard to sort of muck it up, and that's why I tried, <laughs> I tried you know, not to. Um, and you're right, uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot, there's, a, there's more or less modern biographies on, on almost all the people who are running for office, with the exception of, of Garrett Smith, who's the, the kind of Ralph Nader of 1860, the, the sort of um, protest candidate. Um, the newspapers were fantastic. I mean, the, news, the newspaper accounts were just, you know, of course, in those days, uh, newspapers weren't just conservative or, or progressive. They were really tied to one party, one candidate, and, and they engaged in um, this kind of scorched earth uh, discourse and and so the papers were just fantastic to read and they were really a great source and so if maybe if the story really came to life it's, it's probably even more the stories in the newspapers than than the private correspondence I mean Lincoln especially is, is the master of writing these kind of short vague letters that, that reveal very little I mean he was kind of a master politician when it came to that so that the papers were, were probably the, the best source I had and and Lincoln's own papers were were certainly sanitized by uh, his secretaries Hay and Nicolay before okay. they 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 descended into to Robert's hands and eventually to the Library of Congress. So if he wrote anything really uh, really juicy uh, politically speaking, uh, they made sure that we don't have it today. But but you're right; he's very good at hiding uh, otherwise. Well, it's kind of you know in many ways he was a very sort of closed person, and and you know. Um, for other other projects, I've used uh, John Quincy Adams's diary, and of course, you know, Adams would wake up famously every day at five and, and just kind of pour out his soul into his diary. And that was just that was just not not Lincoln at all. And I've got one quotation in the book from from David Davis, who was Lincoln's. They, they traveled the law circuit. Lincoln finally, of course, put him on the Supreme Court. He was Lincoln's campaign handler in, in uh, 1860. Um, and Davis once said, "You know, I, I, I don't really know Lincoln. He just he just never." kind of opens up about anything to anybody. And these are guys riding around the prairie, you know, this vast legal circuit about the size of the state of Connecticut. And, and Lincoln's just not one of these people who, who, you know, kind of opens himself up. He's a very sort of closed, very cautious person. And you see that that in his political correspondence as well. That is one of the, the, the many contradictions, I think, that makes Lincoln so fascinating, So such a uh, a public man, a politician who's so private, uh, a humorous man who's so melancholy, and, and so on. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break and come back and, and talk about Lincoln and Stephen Douglas and the other candidates of 1860 and what it is they were really trying to accomplish. We'll do that in just a moment when we come back. We're talking today with Douglas Edgerton, author of Year of Meteors. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Everyone has a belief system that they stand by. It's comfortable and safe. If you believe that a hot stove will burn you, you won't touch it. Sometimes beliefs like this are practical, but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much. These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system, and by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambrix, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Douglas Edgerton about his book, Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the election that brought on the Civil War. We were talking in the First section, uh, near the end, I was commenting on, on what a uh, really interesting, well-written book this is, what, what a, a good narrative. It just tells the story of what's happening in 1860. Uh, in some ways, it reminded me of, of how I felt, I recall reading uh, Bruce Catton's Centennial Trilogy, and the entire first volume is doesn't get you up to Fort Sumter. It's all pre-war, and at first going on and on saying, when do we get to the war? What's going on here? And then eventually getting swept up in it and feeling like uh, like you were there in 1860 and all these fatal choices are being made one place or another. Uh, Doug, the question I want to ask you in regard to that is, could a book like this get you tenure at your institution? Um, oh, yeah, probably. I mean, I, this is, it's my sixth book, and, and uh, so it's, it's probably the most... Um, Accessible book, mm-hmm. although although again, you know, I, for a number of years, I've, I've tried to write books that, um, um, you know, I, I think that, that lay readers, you know, could find kind of useful. Um, it's, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, there are there are institutions that have a, a certain level of kind of snob appeal yeah. in, in which um, if, if the book can be, um, you know, read by by lay readers, then their assumption is that it's it's simplistic and you kind of dumbed it down and and i you know i think i think um most american readers are are really quite bright and and so i i I don't you know dumb my my you know my prose down i mean i occasionally have an editor who uh will circle a word and 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 write the margins not a trade word because this was this book was in the trade division Mm -hmm. um which i find you know a little bit odd but um um you know i i i've i've I read a lot of manuscripts every year uh, for university presses, and, and that's always kind of one of my suggestions is you don't have to use terms like mystification in the marketplace. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> Karl Marx didn't know what that meant. And, and so, you know, good, straightforward English 
prose is, is uh, you know, not a bad thing. And I, and I try to let the people also speak for themselves in this book a lot because, again, they're, you know, they're writing interesting letters and, and giving interesting interviews. And, and so I, I try to use their words you know, a good deal so that they can kind of represent themselves. If, if there's a main character in the book, uh, it, it would seem to me to be Stephen Douglas. Yeah. And uh, you, you start the book, there's a sort of flash forward uh, but the, the real narrative begins in 1854, uh, six years before the election. What? Uh, why that year? Why not? Why not ten years earlier? Why not uh, the year before? What? What's 1854? Well, of course, I mean that's one of the most important years. Um, you know, in the, in the antebellum period, it, it's the year that um, Douglas miscalculates in a spectacular fashion, um, and uh, and his Kansas-Nebraska Act tears asunder the the very. Um, Carefully crafted and probably very tenuous uh, compromise of, of 1850. Um, it brings Lincoln essentially out of out of retirement. It, it creates this this whole new uh, anti-Kansas party that comes to be known as the Republican Party, founded in that year. Um, and um, you know, it, it's the question essentially opens slavery up uh, to America's heartland. You know, into the the parts that for. 34 years it had been restricted from by the uh, Louisiana Purchase, part of the Louisiana Purchase land by the Missouri Compromise. And, and uh, you know, for Americans who sort of hoped that slavery was on the ropes, um, this, this kind of really gave it um, a whole new chance. And, and to be fair to Douglas, who I'm, I'm not terribly fond of, um, Douglas sort of bought the idea that the slavery probably couldn't survive in the American Midwest. Um, Douglas made the mistake of, of conflating cotton and slavery, and of course for thousands of years around the globe, slaves did all kinds of labor besides just, you know, sort of pick cotton. Um, so I mean, it, 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 it really seemed to American voters that the country was dramatically moving in the wrong direction. Um, and, um, and so it, it just kind of set all these things in motion uh, that, that culminated in 1860, and ironically, it's almost kind of a Greek tragedy. I mean, this is Douglas's doing. Um, and in the end, um, it, it, it costs Douglas the prize uh, of the, the White House. It, it does. You say in sort of a throw us away line that Douglas did this in part because his land that he owned to the west of Chicago would now be valuable for a transcontinental railroad. And scholars have argued over the years about why Douglas made this colossal misjudgment. Yeah. Uh, do you think it was just personal self-interest? Well, I... Part of it's personal, and, and especially in, in the 19th century, a lot of politicians didn't see any kind of sort of ethical distinction between helping themselves and helping their constituents and helping their states. And, and obviously, if, if Chicago can get the Transcontinental Railroad that's going to go to California as opposed to a southern route, um, it's going to be a very, very good thing you know, for Illinois. Now, he and, and some of his cronies do owned, own kind of prairie land in the West, but it wasn't just about putting money in his own pocket. It was, it was about, you know, helping his state and helping his constituents. And, and he didn't have the sort of... Douglas had a kind of moral blind spot, but it wasn't so much about lining his pocket. It was about slavery. For Douglas, slavery was just any other issue like the tariff that, that could be negotiated, compromised on, um, dealt with. Um, and, and, of course, it wasn't. You know, these are, these are people we're talking about. These are enslaved Americans we're talking about. And... and uh, um, and Douglas didn't really think that. Um, it, just, it was just for him, just yet one more issue for politicians to kind of finesse and and, uh, um, and shove off the table. 
Douglas certainly did not see, I think, the storm coming um, that that hit because of Kansas, Nebraska. Um, others did, and and he certainly got an inkling at one point. You know, he goes back to Chicago to defend. Uh, turning over this 34-year-old ban in front of his constituents, and, and people actually spit on him. Um, so, you know, he's denounced in, in pulpits, you know, all around Illinois. Uh, so, you know, for for Douglas, um, slavery was not a moral problem. It simply was kind of a political issue. And and while it's not a moral problem for many in the North, I, I mean, you make it clear that, that Douglas was, was very much a, a white supremacist, in the manner of most white Americans of his time, uh, but even even those who opposed slavery often were white supremacists. Oh sure. Uh, and Douglas, I, I wonder if he just mistook that, that that because many anti-slavery people were were also anti-black, that he, he assumed nobody could really care about these enslaved people, uh, even those who pr- pretended to be ab- you know claimed to be abolitionists didn't actually want. Right, social or political equality. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly true that that um, even among the Republicans, um, and this is the one thing that that probably some readers and certainly my students have a hard time understanding. Their assumption is, you know, looking at, for example at the 1960s, if you are against something like segregation, then you must be for something, which is you know integration. In the case of a lot of Republicans, they're opposed to slavery on a lot of interconnected grounds: economic, moral, political. Um, but but that doesn't necessarily you know mean that they want to um, have you know black children come to their their daughter's schools. Um, you know, for most of his career, like it makes it very very clear that he's against slavery. He's also against all these things. And of course, especially the Lincoln Douglas debates in '58 makes it very clear he's not for black voting rights. He's not for blacks being on juries. He's not for intermarriage. You know, Douglas is kind of race baiting him during, especially the Charleston Illinois debate. Um, so it's you know. It, Douglas is is not, you know, way out on the edge of of northern public opinion. I mean, he's, he's pretty much a mainstream northern Democrat. Um, the the term he uses for African Americans um, is is uh, commonly used by northern Democratic newspapers, and it's obviously you know the N word we're talking about here. That's right. Um, so the language he uses is the language of of northern Democrats. You quote that great line where Seward tells him, you know, yeah. Douglas, any man who spells Negro with two G's will never become president. Uh, that, that at some level of, of genteel society, one didn't use that word. But Douglas was not at that level, certainly not in public speaking. He uses it freely. No, and of uh, course, one of the ironies is that, that Jefferson Davis would not use that word. Um, right. But it is, but you're right again, he's, there's nothing genteel about, about Stephen Douglas. He's pugnacious. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's the language of it's the language of uh, Illinois. It's the language of Chicago. And he's also he's a young man at this time. Uh... I mean, he's only forty eight when when he dies in the summer of eighteen sixty one. And um, um, and of course he, he he'd been involved in politics for for you know decades. Um, he got a handful of uh, votes in the eighteen fifty two Democratic convention. Uh, almost got the nomination in fifty six. And had he gotten the nomination in fifty six instead of Buchanan, he would have won. Uh, he would have been running for re-election in eighteen sixty. Um, so uh, you know, we we sort of forget how how young he was and how long he'd been involved in politics. Um, but um, and and of course, he was in terrible shape. Drank uh, even by the standards of the nineteenth century. Excessively, and uh, and finally, in the summer of '61, his his liver just shuts down. 
Now, one of the things that makes this election of 1860 different is that uh, while you have Douglas early on seeing himself as a front runner to be the Democratic nominee and probably the, the next president after Buchanan, uh, there's there's a widespread view that Henry Seward, William Henry Seward, will become the uh, uh, the next uh, Republican candidate. But you've also got people who have been campaigning for years uh, uh, to make sure that the Democrats don't that nobody wins this election. Essentially, right. uh, the, the the fire eaters, the, the Yancey and Rhett in particular. Uh, what what did, talk about them? Who were they, and what did they want? Well, I mean, this is really what makes, well, there's a lot of things that make, make the election of 1860 um, so unusual. And, and the fact that you have leading Democrats in the South um, who want to lose is, is one of the most uh, unusual things about, about this campaign. I mean, you know, for most, for most leading politicians, even when they assume their, their party is going to lose, they don't, they don't want that to happen. Uh, but you've got a handful of people, and, and of course the term is fire eater, meaning the people who are the most uh, radically committed to uh, to slavery, to secession, um, and a handful of people. Uh, one of them is, is William Lowndes Yancey. Yancey was was a, a former Alabama congressman. His nickname at the time was the Prince of the Fire Eaters. He was um, eloquent. Uh, he decided uh, shortly after the Compromise of 1850 that that the interests of the planter class were simply not safe in the Union, um, and uh, was a member of this organization called the League of the South. It was dedicated. Um, to, to convincing other white Southerners that they needed their own separate country, they had to get away from from the North and get away from industrialization, and and all these immigrants were pouring into northern cities. Um, they had the support, especially of, of another man, Robert Barnwell Rett. Uh, Rett was a South Carolinian. He'd also been um, in in politics, but at the time he was most uh, famous for being the publisher of the Charleston Mercury, which was um, kind of the New York Times of the South. I mean, it was it was the most important paper in the South. It was the most incendiary, anti-Northern, pro-slavery paper. It was edited by his son, um, same name. Uh, Rhett's name, by the way, was Smith. And, and when he was a young man, he decided that Smith wasn't um, romantic enough. So he, he dropped that and took the name Robert Barnwell Rhett. Um, and uh, they're both they're both at the Charleston Convention in 1860. Yancey has been pushing very hard for federal protection for slavery in the territories. Um, he's got a, a platform called the Alabama Platform, in which the federal government will con- con- commit itself to protecting slavery in the territories, which Douglas is very much opposed to on the grounds of popular sovereignty. Um, the assumption of most white Southerners is that William Henry Seward, who they despise is going to be the Republican nominee. They've never heard of this this guy, Lincoln, who kind of comes out of out of nowhere. Um, and um, uh, they they also dislike Douglas. They don't regard Douglas as being kind of properly pro-slavery. But what they really want is is out of the country. And, and so they work very hard to break up the Democratic Party and, um, um, and, and elect William Seward, which they assume will, will kind of trigger secession. And in many ways, uh, you know, they get their way. There's a, a scene in the book where the Democrats uh, just kind of explode in, in the Charleston Convention, and Southerners walk out in protest. Um, and Yancey's sitting there smiling. I mean, he's he's just thrilled by this this kind of party anarchy because he's going to elect a Republican, and and uh, and they're going to leave. By that time, the Democratic Party is one of the few national institutions remaining. The 
the, the various uh, Protestant denominations have broken into northern and southern wings. The Whig Party has disintegrated. The American Party never got off the ground. The uh, Supreme Court is discredited in half the country by Dred Scott. There's really uh, – the presidency is discredited by Buchanan. There's nothing that all Americans – that you can find in every American state except the Democratic Party. And so you can see, I guess, the NC and Rhett are thinking, well, you know, this is the last thread. If, if we Once this is snapped, right. there is nothing holding the country together. And they, they succeed in that, and it's really uh, – uh, there's something creepy about about him sitting there smiling as the delegates walk out when when we know uh, the reader knows that his his little game may be a success today, but it's going to end on uh, some very bloody battlefields. Right, but of course, it's not but, going but to end well. They don't see that coming, and they're convinced no. that that um, and I should make it very clear for your listeners, um, they want secession. They they don't want civil war, and they don't think it's going to happen. They've convinced themselves. That, that Yankees are a race of clerks, and, and there's this, this kind of common refrain that, that the planter politicians keep using. Uh, one, one person, um, um, uh, John, James Chestnut, who's a senator Chestnut. from South Carolina, the husband of diarist Mary Chestnut, says he'll happily drink all the blood that's spilled uh, because, of course, it'll be less than a teaspoon, and somebody else adopts that and says they'll happily you know, mop it up with their handkerchief. And, and so you know, they're convinced that they can leave and they'll get away with it. And... and they're not remotely afraid of Lincoln. You know, he has no military background. He's he's not, you know, a West Pointer. He has you know no military experience, and and they're quite positive that they can that they can pull this off. And and uh, um, there is one person I, I, I quote uh, watching the, all these events in Charleston, and uh, and he says, you know, I fought I fought besides on the side of Yankees, you know, in the Mexican War, and um, uh, they know how to fight. This, this may be a bad idea, and certainly John Brown should have disabused him of the idea that, that all Yankees were pacifists and clerks. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they don't think there's going to be war. No, they, it's uh, just as as, uh, as Douglas miscalculates with with Kansas, Nebraska. The, the fire eaters miscalculate with the whole secession idea, uh, which really does lend that that tone of Greek tragedy to all the proceedings here. Uh, we'll take another break and, and get to the denouement of our Greek tragedy in just a moment. We're talking today about the 1860 election. The book is Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the election that brought on the Civil War. Our guest is Douglas R. Edgerton. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Doug Edgerton about Year of Meteors. It's a book about the 1860 election, the presidential election that is followed by Civil War. We've been talking about uh, some of the, the leading characters in that, uh, Stephen Douglas, of course, eventually nominated by part of the Democratic Party, the, the fire eaters, uh, Rhett and Yancey, who, who sought to break up the Democratic Party successfully. The, there were others in that election, in particular, a, a third party, the Constitutional Union Party, uh, Doug, you make the point that third parties are nothing new in American politics, but typically they are protest movements or intended to to uh, siphon votes, or they have the effect of siphoning votes away from, from the party they're closest to and causing the other side to win. Uh, but this party, the Constitutional Union Party, w- was in it to win it. They thought they could actually win this election. Uh, given that they had such a small base, well, well, who were they and how did they possibly think they could win? Well, these are, yeah, they, and of course they don't expect to win on, on election day. They expect to win actually after election day, and I'll explain that. Um, these are, are mostly former Whigs. The Whig party was, was uh, the, the longtime opposition party. The Democrats was the party of Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams and Daniel Webster. It was kind of loosely the party of big government and business. And, of course, Lincoln and Seward had, had been Whigs before the party had finally kind of collapsed over the question of slavery and divisions over slavery. Um, so you had a lot of, especially in, in kind of the upper south, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Kentucky, um, uh, people who were kind of without a party. You know, they, they, they had been Whigs. Um, they couldn't bring themselves to become Republicans. That was just kind of a bit too radical. Um, and despite the fact that Stephen Douglas was not the kind of Democrat that, that old Andy Jackson would have recognized, um, they just kind of couldn't get on the Democratic bandwagon, and, and so their hope was that. And plus, also, you know, look at a map. Um, if if war comes, these states are going to be the front, and they know it. And, and uh, uh, Virginia, of course, uh, still has a, a giant slave population. The, the percentage of slaves is is far lower than that of, say, South Carolina. But but numerically, they've got this giant population, and they're still selling a lot of surplus slaves to the lower South. They're still very invested in. in uh, um, Maintaining the country and 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 holding on to slavery and and so um, they finally meet in Baltimore and, and call themselves the Constitutional Union Party. Uh, they nominate uh, two former Whigs, John Brown, uh, pardon me, John Bell, of uh, uh, Tennessee, and Edward Everett, who was a very famous orator from Massachusetts. In fact, he's he's the big name at Gettysburg, not Lincoln. Lincoln was kind of the afterthought. Um, by the time they meet in their convention, the Democrats have exploded. It's pretty clear there's going to be two Democratic candidates, Stephen Douglas and, and John C. Breckinridge finally becomes the Southern Democratic candidate. So, as you correctly point out, you know, what had been this, this kind of force of union is, is now been torn apart. Um, 
And it's quite possible, therefore, that with with a Republican in the, the contest, and then there's also the, the potential spoiler of Garrett Smith in, in New York and New England, it's quite possible that nobody will get that magic 50.1% in the Electoral College. Um, and at that point, of course, it'll it'll go to the House, and, and the assumption is the House might try to find some kind of middle ground in a, a debate that increasingly doesn't have a middle ground. Um, so in their, their convention, uh, they refused to take a position on slavery and the territories, which, I mean, it sounds kind of odd because they refused to take a position on the only issue that Americans really care about in 1860. Um, they just talk instead about the Constitution, their, their loyalty to the Constitution, the flag, the kind of holding the country together um, at a time in which party platforms are, are enormously important. I mean, parties still have platforms if nobody reads them, you know. But in the 19th century, they do. Uh, this party doesn't actually, you know, put out a platform. Uh, their, their platform simply is going to be that they want the union to, to hold together. Um, and they actually carry three states. And, and again, that's, that's the hard part to do. I, virtually every election has some kind of third-party component. Um, but under our electoral system, actually carrying state, that, that's the hard part. You know, in 1992, Ross Perot got, what, 18% of the popular vote, but zero electoral votes. Uh, John Bell... Um, carried three states, uh, Virginia, uh, Breckenridge is Kentucky, Tennessee, almost carried Maryland, uh, did really, really well in Delaware, and almost stole Missouri from Douglas, which is the only uh, state that, that Douglas carries. Um, so actually, um, the third-party candidate uh, came in third in the Electoral College, um, which is ahead of Stephen Douglas. Uh, Douglas got more popular votes by a good margin, um, but actually came in, in fourth in the Electoral College. And, and so... Their hope was that they wouldn't win in November, but they would win, you know, in December and January when when the country sort of coalesced around them and realized that they were the kind of best hope for um, for for peace and, and union. So, so not it's a long shot, but not not impossible. I would briefly take issue with the, the the comment about Edward Everett as the main guest at Gettysburg. Lincoln is an afterthought that. Uh, uh, Edward, Everett was certainly the main speaker, but Lincoln was an integral part of the proceedings from the beginning. Uh, but he had a secondary role. He was there to dedicate the cemetery, sure. not, to, not to speak. Um, but the uh, uh, so so we've looked at, at Douglas, at Bell, uh, Lincoln. We talk about here all the darn time. Uh, we'll move on to Breckenridge, the the southern democratic candidate once the democratic party splits and nominates douglas and the southerners nominate uh breckenridge did he intend to win or, or was he was was he another was he just planning to break up the union um well i think no i think certainly his a lot of his supporters um you know are secessionists and that that's a charge that douglas consistently makes and it's got it's got some merit um both Yancey and Rhett publicly support Breckenridge, although at one point Rhett says that a Breckenridge victory would be um, actually a, a real blow for the, for the white South because it would convince them that they were safe in the Union. Uh, it would give the North four more years to become more populous, more industrialized, more powerful. Um, I, but Breckenridge, I think, is, is not inherently a secessionist. Um, I should point out, that, of course, as soon as, as uh, the, the South forms, and of course, Kentucky does not secede, but a number of Kentuckians do ride south and fight for the Confederacy, and Breckinridge is one of those. And so he actually uh, kind of abandons his state and, and fights with um, a small number of Kentuckians for, for Jeff Davis. Um, but he does actually very well. He carries 11 states. He carries you know, basically what um, 
is going to be the Confederacy. Um, uh, kind of squeezes out Bell in, in Maryland and Delaware, but not, not by much. Um, but um, uh, in terms of, of the popular vote, which again doesn't, doesn't mean that much, he only gets 18.1% of the popular vote. Uh, but he comes in second in the Electoral College, and again, that's, that's you know, what, what really matters. And so, uh, you know, if you look at a map of, of 1860, you know, that, that all that South, that's him. You know, poor Douglas, the guy who everybody agreed would one day sit in the president's chair, um, barely carries Missouri. He comes in about 400 votes ahead of Bell in Missouri. And then, and then part of New Jersey, and that's and that's it. So, um, certainly looking at a map, uh, Breckinridge is is the much more viable candidate. And Breckinridge also had the endorsement of uh, he had, of course, been the city vice president. So he has the endorsement of Buchanan, uh, John Tyler. You know, most of, uh, with the exception of um, uh, Martin Van Buren, who kind of quietly endorses Douglas. Uh, most of the the party leaders were hoping that Douglas would get out of the fray and simply turn it over. To Breckenridge, hoping that a unified Breckenridge-led ticket could uh, could carry the day. Well, now Douglas then finishes last of these four, but he, he doesn't go down without a fight. Uh, among other things, he he actually campaigns for the office, yeah. which is unheard of. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, talk about that. Well, he uh, starts by campaigning in New England, and that's that's. And you're right. I mean, you're not supposed to campaign. Lincoln, for example, doesn't campaign. It's, there's this old kind of American tradition that 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 you shouldn't seek the office out. The office should seek you out. And and there was this kind of odd tradition in in the early republic where a delegation would would go to the house of John Quincy Adams, for example, and say, you know, Mr. Adams, you've been elected president, and he's supposed to act surprised, like like he didn't know. Um, so, so you know, today where where candidates are you know living in these these you know battleground states, I mean, that just wasn't done. In the 19th century, uh, Douglas does decide to campaign in New England. He's actually born in New England. Uh, he hasn't lived there in, in years. Um, and his excuse is he's going to go visit his mother. And, it, and, and no one buys that. I mean, the press just finds that hilarious. And it takes him forever to get to actually to see his mother. And so the Republicans are running cartoons of, of little lost Douglas. And he's looking for his mother. Um, <laughs> and there's, it's not all one election day in, in 1860. And, and so there's a gubernatorial election in October. And, and Pennsylvania, which the Democrats had carried in, in 56, comes in really big for the Republicans. And at that point, Douglas understands that, that Lincoln is going to win. And, and kind of the one sort of principal act of Douglas's career, he says, you know, Lincoln is the next president, I will go south. And so he campaigns all across the south, um, getting them ready for the fact that, that this guy who's, who's not going to get any votes in the south, Lincoln gets um, 1,887 votes in Virginia. That's it. Um, Handful of votes in Kentucky. That that this guy is going to be the next president, and uh, Northern Democrats might not like that, but Northern Democrats um, will fight to make sure that that on you know in March that Lincoln will be sworn in, and and so he's trying to get the South prepared for the fact that that the North is unified behind the idea that the person who gets the most electoral votes you know should be the next president. So this really is this heroic climax of Douglas's career after a lifetime as a, a very skillful, uh, occasionally miscalculating, but generally uh, adept politician. It was essentially amoral, cert- certainly regarding slavery, uh, but does turn out to have, uh, underneath all the self-interest, a, a deep devotion to the Union and, and tours the South uh, not for his own election, but to, but to urge them, as you just said, to 
to accept the verdict of the election that's about to happen. And he really, uh, and this brings us back to where your book starts, because this is, Douglas pours all his life energy into this last effort. Uh, he goes back to Illinois, and of course there's a lot of concern, especially in southern Illinois, which is you know, kind of very economically tied to the south. Um, you know, what will happen if the south leaves and of course takes New Orleans, the port with them, and the, the, you know, the, the pathway to the Gulf down the Mississippi. And, and so there are people in, in Illinois talking about uh, certainly not joining the south, but maybe creating some kind of um, Midwestern republic and... and uh, and so after Sumter, Douglas goes back to Chicago. In fact, he actually speaks in, in the Wigwam, the special convention hall built for the Republicans in 60, um, to, to kind of get the, the Northern Democrats behind Lincoln, especially on the issue of, of fighting to hold the Union together and, and raising um, you know, soldiers after, after Fort Sumter. And, um, and, and it's there, this, this, this kind of last uh, speech in the Wigwam, he says, you know, I, I was wrong. I, I, I bent over way too much to conciliate white Southerners. I didn't think enough about my own constituents. And um, I think at that point he really realizes, you know, that the white South Democrats, he expected to support him. They spent all these years helping with things like Kansas, Nebraska. It had just utterly kind of sold him out and, and frankly sold the country out. And, and so um, uh, he you know, puts in very, very long hours. And again, he was always in in, in terrible shape, and um, and so that's where he he dies in in the summer of sixty one at the age of at the age of forty eight. It is really uh, quite a story. the The book covers a lot of ground that we we skimmed over here between the election and uh, and the beginning of the war. The discussion of the secession, uh, the states one by one, which is equally fascinating story. And that will leave that to give an incentive for uh, uh, listeners to to buy a copy of this book and read that. But I do want to jump to your epilogue about whether the election could have turned out differently. Uh, how different would things have had to to be? How how inevitable was the Republican electoral victory? I think yeah, I, you know, I, I, I crunch the numbers a lot of different ways in this epilogue and try to make it work for for Douglas or for Breckenridge or for Unified Ticket or if Bell's not in the race. Um, I think it's 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 possible that a unified Democratic ticket, uh, say a Douglas, if he bowed out in Charleston and they'd found you know some kind of sort of dark horse acceptable to um, all but the most radical fire eaters, um, somebody with a you know a northern running mate, uh, Caleb Cushing, somebody like that from Massachusetts, who was kind of a famous doe face, a northern man who would sort of conciliate the South. Um, and that, of course, is what we'll never know. I mean, what would have happened had that been the scenario? But but the Democratic brand um, was really tainted in 1860, um, thanks to Dred Scott, Kansas, Nebraska, the Lecompton, uh, the, which is the fight about the, which constitution uh, Kansas will have, uh, Buchanan's disastrous administration. Um, it was it was not a good time to be a Democrat. Um, Bell is not. The spoiler. Um, I mean, I, I sort of concluded that for Douglas to win, he needed to carry um, the one state he does carry, Missouri. Um, he carries half of New Jersey. He needs all of that. He needs Breckenridge's um, 11 states. He needs Bell states. Then he still needs to peel away um, Pennsylvania, which Lincoln carries, uh, or Illinois, uh, which Lincoln barely carries, not not by much, um, and Indiana. So it's it's possible and it's just it's just really not not likely um lincoln needed 152 electoral votes to win he gets 180 um only in a handful of states 
California does the combined uh, Democratic tally of Douglas and Breckenridge exceed that of Lincoln, but, but California at the time was nothing. It was four electoral votes. It wasn't like it was today. New York was 35. So it's, it's, it seems really implausible that, that Lincoln was going to lose in 60. Um, I mean, the, the, the Electoral College is just in his favor in 60. And, and this, uh, and of course, that's based on on population to a large extent. Sure. It's based on, on uh, House of Representatives and Senate combined. So you end up with, in, in one sense, I suppose, that, that validates at least the strategy of the, the fire eaters, that the South was being left behind in terms of population, and sooner or later would be outvoted uh, every time. And they just made it a point to see that it happened in 1860 so they, they could go ahead with their project of secession. Well, it is time, unfortunately, for us to secede from the airwaves. Uh, uh, time always runs out too quickly on the show, but this uh, this book really is uh, a, a delight to read. It was uh, initially a listener suggestion to Civil War Talk Radio that uh, a listener said I ought to uh, read this and invite you on, and I'm very glad I did. Uh, uh, thanks for being on the show. Well, I really appreciate it. It was, it was great to talk to you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.